We're obviously in the book of Romans. This morning, I'd like to look at uh, verses 11 through 15. We may not get through all of those verses. We'll see how far we get. But this is Paul's personal introduction. We started on that last last time. We started in verse 8, actually, where it begins. So we'll pick up in verse 11 today. And obviously, if you were a believer in the first century, you were very familiar with the Roman Forum. In fact, uh, probably Christians were there sharing the gospel with unbelievers in the midst of a corrupt government, an oppressive government, very much different from what we experience in terms of them being persecuted. And by the time the book of Romans was written, Christians were already suffering for their faith, dying for their faith. In fact, Stephen had already been martyred before the book of Romans had been written. So these are some of the sites that Christians would have been familiar with and seen as they lived in this largest of cities in the Roman Empire. Today I'd like to look by way of application And I don't think last time I stressed kind of enough, I'll kind of remind you of what I did last week. But these are kind of the applications we want to draw from the passage. Obviously, we will look at the text and try to understand what Paul is is telling us by inspiration and then draw out applications. Last time, I mentioned that the first three verses there, verses 8 through 11, Paul is just relaying to the Romans a little bit of his own experience, his own heart. And from that, we drew some applications. I probably didn't make that clear. And I appreciated Amanda's question at the end there that kind of alerted me to probably not being as clear as I wanted to be. But once you expound a passage, then you can draw applications. But you have to understand the passage first. Now, one thing that Edwin does is he jumps very quickly to the application. And sometimes, I I think he does good exegetical work, but sometimes he doesn't transition in, in expounding the text. He jumps right into the application. And I probably did something like that last time when we talked about Paul as a pattern for prayer. And we're going to do something similar today. Probably won't get through all nine scratched out The six there is I just downloaded that from the internet. We're going to have nine instead of six. And when we're talking about signs of real maturity, I don't think whoever created that graphic had spiritual things in mind. And I think that is real spiritual maturity. And Paul is an example. And we can draw from the things that Paul gave us and apply them to us because he's an example, not only of praising prayer and a pattern for prayer, but he's also an example of someone that was spiritually mature. And we get little hints of that in the text itself that we'll draw out by way of application. So we're looking at still Paul's personal introduction, beginning in verse 8 through verse 15. We saw his praising prayers... And that's verses 8 through 10. And in the passage, the emphasis is prayer. I showed you that there's four specific words relating to prayer. And the main thrust is what Paul is praying for. And now in this passage, we see the content of that prayer. 
is essentially praying for God's timing to go to the city of Rome. That's the essence of it. Those are the plans. So his plans are based on what he has prayed about or what he had continually prayed about. And in that we saw a pattern for prayer. And we're going to apply, if we will, and that's your slide with the outline sheet in the margins there. This time I included your applications there. We're going to look at Paul as a model of maturity. He's a good example. We can draw things from that, and I've observed at least nine things. There's actually more in there, but I didn't want to overwhelm you with 20 of them. (laughs) So we'll look at the nine major examples that Paul is in terms of maturity. And we're going to go back to verse 8. And you remember in verse 8, Verse 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now that is a first priority, if you will, of prayer. Now Amanda's question was, should we start with confession? And yes, we should start with confession if we need to. And we generally do need to. And that's actually the first chronological thing that we should do. But in terms of first, in terms of priority... We ought to start with praising God. And I think that's the emphasis when it says first there. We looked at that last week. So there's also an application, not only in prayer, but we should be thankful. This is an element or an evidence of spiritual maturity. If you can evaluate every situation and in that situation, thank God no matter what. And a spiritually mature person doesn't get overwhelmed by the circumstances. They're able to look at the circumstances, recognize that God is at work, that God is sovereign, and no matter what, no matter how negative things may be, still God is going to work all these things for good, and as a result, we can praise Him. Work things for good for those that are called according to His purpose. So no matter what, A spiritually mature person is one that can find what God is doing and thank Him no matter what the circumstances. So that's an application we can draw from verse 8. And then from verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel, etc., we can draw that also in verse 9, I serve in my spirit, the preaching of the gospel of the Son is my witness as to how unceasingly my mention of you. We talked about one of the elements of prayer is persistent prayer. So a spiritually mature person is one that is persistent in prayer. In other words, this is an important element in a mature believer. Recognizing that nothing is accomplished that is eternal or spiritual apart from God doing it. And he has chosen to do it through us. So, a spiritually mature person is a person that prays. And different, all of us are at different places in that. Some of us need more work. And some of you are prayer warriors where this is one of your main ministries. But a spiritually mature person is one that is a person of prayer. Spends time in prayer. That's the emphasis of verse 9. Then last time we look at verse 10, always in my prayer, there's persistence again, making request if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. His desire is to visit, 
But it's not just a plan. In other words, okay, I've got all these plans and this is next on the list. It is always what? Number three, it's controlled by the will of God. In other words, a spiritually mature person is one that is sensitive to what God is doing in different circumstances. And he opens and he closes doors. He sometimes leads by invitation, as Paul did in the second missionary journey. He saw a vision, and he saw a man inviting him to Macedonia. And in that circumstance, he felt that God was leading. Well, he was definitely leading because it was a vision in in terms of Paul. We may not have a vision, but we have God's word that guides us. And God's word can be very instrumental in setting forth the plans and when God is moving in terms of what he wants us to do. So a spiritually mature person is one that is controlled by God's will. In other words, that's first and foremost. Now, Paul had spiritual desires. We're going to see that in in this passage that we're going to look at. He had desires that were all good. In other words, there was nothing wrong with them, but it was not God's timing at the time that he writes the book. In fact, in our introduction, the reason he even writes the book of Romans is because God had changed his timing in terms of a visit to Rome. The second best thing that he could do, other than visit directly, was to send a note like the book of Romans. And in fact, in the will of God, if you will, this letter is designed for you and I as well because it's inspired. And we have essentially probably the theology that uh, Paul would have given when he went to Rome. So we have the essence of Pauline theology in the book of Romans. So it was controlled by the will of God. And as a result because he's sensitive to the will of God, this letter is not just a letter, but it's an inspired letter. But in the back of Paul's mind, he wanted to visit Rome, but the timing was not right. So that's evidence of a, or an indication of a spiritually mature person. So that brings us into the passage we're going to look at today. Beginning in verse 11, these are his purposeful plans. In other words, they're not plans just to even had fellowship, I think that's part of it, but it's it's not just social, he's not just missing them, or he's not just desiring to have a good time when he goes to Rome, but his plans have definite purpose behind them, and he lays that out in the passage. So that's how I capture the essence of that. So again, we're continuing with our P's here in our alliteration. Praising prayers, 8 through 10, purposeful plans, 11 through 15. And I've broken it down into, what, four different parts there? Four, four parts. First part is productive desire to visit. Desire includes things that will be very, very productive. That's 11 and 12. And as we often do, not... Always, but just to reinforce, how do you get into a text? Where do you start? You isolate complete sentences. You study sentence by sentence. This is the way that God has built in us to communicate thoughts. So don't study verse by verse, because you may not have a complete sentence. And if so, then you're going to miss the context of everything within 
So verses 11 and 12 is a complete sentence. Notice at the end of verse 11, semicolon. And that reflects the Greek text. And, and by the way, when you study, you should use probably a more literal translation, one that uh, is closer to the uh, biblical text. Now, there, there's some Bibles, like the NIV, for example, that is more dynamic equivalent, which means it, it seeks to, to kind of smooth it out a little bit so that it's easier to read. It's a good reading Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different translation philosophy. The New American Standard is a little more choppy, a little bit more awkward in terms of reading, but it reflects a little bit more closely the, the Greek text, as we have in this sentence. So you have a complete sentence that uh, goes all the way through the end of verse 12. So that's the sentence. So then you isolate. What do you do next? Well... Independent clause, and then the subject and the verb of the independent clause. Independent clause, who wants to try to isolate it? I long to see you, exactly, includes for. Now, sometimes when you have a for, if it's part of another sentence, it usually introduces a subordinate clause. But in this case, the for is more introductory to the independent clause. And the subject of that sentence... I, so it's referring to Paul, and the verb, nope, long, to see is what kind of part of speech? Well, well I guess it's a verb. Uh, it's got a verbal idea, but it's not a verb. The, the verb is long, and that, that's the main verb. Okay, it, no. Infinitive. Okay, it could mean uh, an adjective as far as distance, but uh, we, at least in English, we sometimes use it as a verb. I long. I wish. I wish. Well, that's long. That is a verb. Yeah. So, so but uh, to see is an infinitive that kind of tells you about the longing. It's not a gerund. Well, um, I don't even know what a gerund is, but. Okay, <laughs> okay I, right. think that, I think a gerund is a, um, if I'm remembering right, a pretty good adjective, which is uh, like a running back. Uh, running is actually a verb, but a running back is a never used as an adjective. It's like a part of the participle. Is, um, participle. It's fictional. Yeah. The reason I don't know anything about gerunds is because there aren't any in the Greek. And that's all I know as far as grammar. I don't know any English grammar. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of the main idea. The longing or the, the desire, the powerful desire to see them... Everything else is just telling us something about that plan. And that plan includes a purpose, and that's everything else. So, I long to see you. Everything else is just going to expand that desire or that plan. I used to love diagramming. Is that an object? Is that an object? To see? To see. It's a verbal idea. It's called an infinitive. You is the object. That's right. It's the object of the infinitive. All right. We'll get your Greek grammar down here someday. Okay. After that, everything else is just telling us more. So we have a series of, if you have one independent clause, unless is there another independent clause in there? Probably not. So therefore, what do we have? We probably have now a series of dependent clauses, and most of them are like purpose clauses. 
the purpose of the longing, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. In fact, we have a series of them, that, another one, in other words, kind of extending, that you may be established. So he has all of these parts of it that I see as a purposeful plan. And then in verse 12, that is that, again, I may be encouraged together with you. Then we have another subordinate clause. So we have all of these words that introduce subordinate clauses. So we have one, two, three, four subordinate clauses, one independent clause, all four of them. If you have an independent clause, everything else is just telling you something about it, about his plan, about his longing, his desire. All right, you got that? That I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So do you see that? You can break a sentence down like that. You can see how all the parts fit together, and then you can see the idea that God is trying to communicate to us through his word. And you can put it together and understand it, and that's what we're doing. So, part of this purposeful plan is his productive desire to visit them, 11 and 12. Let's look at the first part of that, verse 11. And the essence of it is he has a powerful longing to do something or to to see them particularly. So, let's look at the independent clause, for I long to see you, which is the essence of it, including the four. And that's a indication of relationship, this strong desire. What does that imply in terms of that relationship between Paul and the readers? He cares about them. And that would give us an indication of something that is a characteristic of mature believers. So number four, a spiritually mature person is somebody that has a powerful love for those that he has contact with and relationships with. Now, he'd never been to Rome yet, as far as we know. Now, if he had a trip, it may have been in his youth or something like that. But in terms of ministry, in terms of Paul as a believer, he had, as far as we know, had never been to Rome. But he knew a lot of people there. We get that indication from the conclusion of the book. Because he greets lots of people. Travel was fairly easy in the first century. Just as easy as riding a bike today. Not as easy as driving a car. Pardon me? Not? Not. Okay. But travel was very relative in that time frame. Easy to get about. So there was a lot of movement. So people got to know each other in different locations. Paul knew lots of people at the city of Rome. And he had a deep desire to see them a strong love for them because he had a concern for them. That's why I have powerful desire or powerful plans. A yearning, yearning, yes. And that's the meaning of the word. It's a compulsion even. Now, I'm not going to give you all of the usages of that word, but it has some of that element to it. It was a a relationship, and it was a... it was a love. Yeah. It was a love that motivated his... I think he had business doing it. I think God put him in that position. At least most, if not all, of the rest of us today. Uh, I rather am for maturity. Uh, I think it's better if it says thinking like that. Uh, you know, everyone I know can learn from me. Everybody I know has something I think is a better at. 
Yeah, uh, I think Paul is probably a unique. Well, there's several elements that we'll get to. This is just one of them. He's motivated. That's the starting point, actually, in this passage. His longing, his desire, his compulsion, you might even say, his love for the Romans. There's other things in there as well. Now, the next part of the verse is going to give us his primary purpose. And it's going to give us this productivity idea. He wants to see productivity or fruitfulness. We'll see that as we get to the middle of the passage. That's why I call it purposeful plan. So it's it's not just a social event. He has a vision behind it that, in fact, is a benefit not only to the Romans, but we're going to find even to himself. So it's not fair to say that this is a concern and love for Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that, is that the word excuse me? No, belonging is a different word. It's, it's in some cases, it's a strong desire, basically. The word love is not in the context, but we're drawing that by way of inference and application. So let's look at the first dependent clause. It's a purpose clause. That, in other words, his longing is for this purpose, that I may, first of all, impart some spiritual gift to you. Now, there's a little bit of probably misunderstanding of that verse based on the English. It almost seems apostolic, and it is apostolic, and it's not clear in the New Testament whether an apostle had the ability to transmit, if you will, by the laying on of hands. We kind of get a little of that from Timothy where Paul reminds Timothy to exercise his gift that he received on the laying on of hands. So this may be something apostolic, and that's a view that can be taken from that. Now, I don't take that view because I think it's in the more general sense here, this imparting. And so I did a word study on it. It doesn't occur very frequently, but every word that it's used It just has the idea of bestowing something or giving something. It doesn't have any connotation of some special, miraculous, apostolic idea. You see, since they did not have the Bible, Paul has from the Lord that to him, we still are imparting to us. And so some of these remote tribes, where someone came in a little about the gospel 15 years ago in but it's really sheer God's worth arrogance. No, it's not an arrogance. But what I'm trying to kind of give you insight here, some take this imparting as a kind of a supernatural laying on of hands, desires to give them spiritual gifts. And I don't think that's the case, and that's not the pattern of church age gifting, if you will. Well, if it's just the Holy Spirit... Their main discussions are certain will come on these people. But the gifts, I mean, the gifts are gifts. Well, that's probably not... Ex- Romans 12, 7. Spiritual gifts. Says that the gifts... Oh, okay. But... That's the point where... Yeah, okay. Is the spirit. And so... But not necessarily in this context. Okay? Jenny. Black and white. Smart enough to way. I just see that I may teach you some stronger. Yes. And that's the essence of it. That's it, and, and I think that's better than reading into it some supernatural laying on of hands and this miraculous receiving of a gift that they never had before. And so we need to take a look at the word 
may impart, in the Greek is this one word, and let's take a look at this idea of spiritual gift. There's two words that are in the Greek text. And I think if we put all of the pieces together, we come to pretty much Jenny's conclusion. And, and that's what I'm going to argue for. And Jesus commanded the Great Commission. Yes. Because he told us to go and make disciples and disciples. This is how we do it. Exactly. Yep. And we'll get to that. So let's take a look at those three words. May impart in the Greek, one word in the Greek, spiritual gift. And I've got it kind of captured on one slide. Uh, not the not the verb, but charisma. What is that? What does that sound like, first of all? Hmm? Charisma. Sounds like charismatic, doesn't it? <laughs> Charis sounds like grace. And that's gift. And that's the essence of a technical spiritual gift that are described in chapter 12 that Bill is referring to. Spiritual gifts. And we'll comment on that. Charisma. And it's used in that sense. Pneumaticas, what is that? Pneumatic, pneumas, breath, or spirit. So, gifts that are spiritual, or spiritual gifts. Now, when that phrase is used, and when both of those words are used, it doesn't always automatically mean spiritual gifts in the more technical sense. In fact, more often than not, it does not mean that. First of all, the verb to means to, to bestow. Uh, none of the usages is used in this supernatural idea sense that we started off with. It just has the idea of sharing something. In other words, Paul just has a desire to share something with them. Not impart in the sense of supernatural laying on of hands and as he touches them, suddenly they have this spiritual gift zapped on them. Now they're able to do certain things. It's never used in that sense, except maybe here. This would be an exception. But it has just the idea of sharing something. In fact, it's used in Romans, in Romans 12, for the gift of giving. So it has the idea of just giving something. The idea of giving. And that's what he, he has a desire. And I think Jenny's right on in uh, understanding it in a straightforward way. Now, this charisma can be used in a technical sense, along with pneumaticas, to give you the idea of spiritual gifts. So those that see the bestowing as a supernatural bestowing, they generally have the other idea of using the phrase there in a technical sense. But more often it's used in a non-technical sense in terms of just a spiritual gift of any sort. Not just spiritual gifts that are described in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, where we have the use in a, in a technical sense. But in several places, it's used in a non-technical sense of just a general blessing. So he desires, and I keep referring to Jenny because I think she's right on, he desires to just bestow on them a general blessing that could include Bible teaching, that could include fellowship, that could include exhortation, that could include just a variety of things. All that fellowship would entail. And I think that's a better way to take the passage. Make sense? And here's some other verses that seem to use the charisma 
in a non-technical sense. Would somebody look up 2 Corinthians 1.11, David? And someone else, 5.15, Jenny? Romans. Yeah, the 5.15. Yes, that's Romans, and the 6.23 is Romans. Who wants to look up Romans 6.23? All right, Linda. You got it? 2 Corinthians 1.11, David? Me also helping together, thy prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us, thanks by many Okay? The word gift there is not used in a not in that technical, specific sense. Kind of a general blessing type sense. Jenny, you got Romans 5? The free gift is not life to transgress. Free gift there? That's charisma. And it has the grace idea. So it's, it uses two words to translate it. It's just one word in the Greek text. But it uses free grace or free gift in that context. Do you notice that? uses the same word. So it's used in that non-technical sense. And in that context, what's it talking about? What is the free gift? Well, it's grace, but what is it? Specific, keep reading. Yeah, it's eternal life. Keep reading it. For if by the trend the many died, much more did the ground to many. Okay, read 16. It is not like that one who sinned, for on the one hand, the other hand, the free gift. Free gift. That's charisma. The free gift. And in that context, in fact, he uses two words. He uses two words in 15, two words in 16. They're different. But one of them in each of those passages is charisma, and it's referring to the gift of salvation, or the gift of, as Linda says, eternal life. So it's used in a broad, general sense, a broad blessing, and in that, those two contexts, eternal life. Similarly, in 623. For the wages of sin. Okay, the wages of sin is death and the charisma is eternal life. So, a blessing of eternal life in that context. Used in a non-technical sense, and I think it's used in that sense in the Romans passage. Romans 1, 111. Okay, so... Uh, what we're going to see in this passage, there's different phases of ministry that Paul refers to as well, besides everything else we're looking at. What he desires is to bestow blessings that edify those at Rome. And it can take a variety of forms. I think it's just general. This is an introduction. It's not specific here in terms of this charisma. It is a general blessing that could include many, many different things. could even include material things. Probably not in terms of Paul in this context, but it could include that. So it's just a general blessing that he desires to bestow on them. Does that make sense? And I think the context of an introduction, the usage of the terms and everything else seems to indicate that. So don't take this in some supernatural way. It's the same kind of thing that you, you would do, for example... Those of you that administered at the uh, rehab center, you go with a desire to bestow a gift, to impart a gift to them. And that gift can come in a variety of forms. Some of you bring singing and music. Some of you bring uh, helps in helping people find different music. And those of you that uh, give a little sermon or devotional, you do it by preaching or teaching or however you, whatever form it takes. That's what Paul is, is indicating. 
And it's whatever blessing that you can bring that brings edification. In other words, bring some spiritual growth, some spiritual input in the audience that you are ministering to. So that's one phase. As we go through the passage, we're going to see other phases as well. So that's the first dependent clause. The second dependent clause, he wants something else to be accomplished. That you may be established. In other words, what flows from this edifying blessing, this imparting of spiritual input, is going to produce them grounded, you will, In fact, this is just another phrase for grounding them in the scriptures. Probably includes a lot of teaching. Probably includes some preaching. Probably includes some encouragement that encourages them to be grounded in the word. And I see that as another phase of ministry. He not only wants to bless them immediately or while he visits, but he wants that to extend such that it encourages them to be established. And that doesn't happen overnight. It takes lots of input. And I don't think that Paul intended to spend lots of time there, but it would lay a foundation and it would be a means of encouraging others to begin exercising their spiritual gifts such that the church at Rome would be established or what I call grounding in the word. That's another phase of ministry. Sunday by Sunday, we attempt to bless by edifying Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But after some time, and this is true of most of you here, most of you have been in the Word for years and years and years, and you're grounded. You're established. You're ready to face whatever the world can throw at you. And you can stand up, because most of you here are grounded. And you're grounded in God's Word. That is a desire. That is a goal. That's an expression of His love. He wants the greatest good to those that he wants to bestow a gift. See that? So this is the kind of the thinking of a mature person. It's just not short term. It's long range. He wants them to be established such that nothing can rock them. And shortly after, and even in that time frame, Christians were suffering for their faith. And he wants them to be established so that that not throw them off. And that's our desire here as well, is to establish believers that they're grounded in the Word. So we have two phases of ministry illustrated in this passage. And that leads to another application we, we can draw. Not only does a mature person have a love for the brethren, but they have a heart for ministry. And that's the reason Paul wants to go. He wants to bestow a blessing. He wants to encourage them. Ultimately, so that they be grounded. So he has this vision of ministry that's going to accomplish things. Does that make sense? Okay, so another little element of spiritual maturity. And then in verse 12, there's also parallel encouragement. That's the way I kind of capture that verse there. By parallel, let's look at the passage and we'll see what I mean by parallel. We have another purpose clause, actually begins with that is, in other words, more specifically, that, another that, another purpose clause, that I may be encouraged together with you. So his desire is to encourage them, to establish them, to minister and to edify them, but in the process, what's going to happen? In that relationship, it's going to encourage Paul as well. 
Jenny. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Now, it's not a self-centered thing. It's just a natural thing that occurs, and I think Paul has that vision. In fact, it's one of the phases of, of ministry. Paul has the idea, when I can edify them, when I can move them one step further in terms of being established and grounded in the Word, the natural byproduct is that I'm going to benefit. And when you do ministry, in fact, when you do ministry, you will be edified. And that's what Paul is talking about. He knows what happens when you minister. When Emmy went to uh, Ecuador, what was it, a couple of years ago on that short-term missionary trip, I told her before she even went, I said, what you do over there is going to be so much, so insignificant in terms of, I was halfway joking, but I was serious as well. But I said, by you going, you're going to benefit probably more than anything that you're going to be able to contribute. And I didn't tell her because you don't know anything, but. <laughs> but that's that's true of even those that have experience. We gain more. I gain more by spending hours in the Word to prepare to come and teach here. I benefit, and I benefit greatly in, in that. And this is what Paul is saying, that I may be encouraged together with you and just the fellowship. And not only the fellowship, but the return in ministry. Not just seeing what happens, but them, those that are in the audience, are ministering back to Paul. And Paul received ministry back. And this is an indication of his attitude as well. Griffith Thomas says, every Christian has received spiritual blessings in order, in other words, this is why we have blessings, in order to impart it. And if we cannot impart, we may well question whether we have received. So we have a desire to share what God has blessed us with. And that's what ministry is all about. Jenny. I have a pastor that needs to not be a pool under. That's right. A pool becomes stagnant. Exactly. But when water is flowing, it is living and active. So we need to be conduits. Very good. So another phase of ministry is you, you bestow blessing on people. It edifies them. And over time, it grounds them in the Word, and that same audience is now going to minister back in return. And when that happens, that's evidence that the group is, in fact, growing and being established, because now they are ministering back to even Paul himself. So there's another phase of ministry. Verse 12, while among you, another dependent clause... Each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Let's take a look at that. Well, this is a humble attitude. He sees that he will be edified as well, each of us, by the other's faith. And just seeing it in action will, in fact, encourage Paul to see that God is using him and that God is active and that they are responsive. It's going to encourage Paul. And he will receive the benefit of those that minister to him in terms of their spiritual gift, both yours and mine. So it's not a one-way street in ministry. And I think we see that in this passage. So it's a humble attitude. And a little quote I found, maturity is not measured by age. So it doesn't matter how old you are. 
There's some young people that are far more spiritually mature than some older people. So age is not an indicator. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of love. It's an attitude of concern. It's an attitude of humility in this context. So Paul is not this big apostle that's coming upon the Romans and dictating upon them. He is bestowing a gift knowing that they will minister back to him as well. So it's an attitude built by experience. And by this stage in Paul's life, he had already had experiences. This is the third missionary journey. He's seen it working. He's seen it over time that this is how God works. And he's just reporting to the Romans kind of his desires and what he desires to see. And you and I, by virtue of the book of Romans, the book of Romans can ground us in the word, can edify us if we just simply read it. It can encourage us to minister back to others, in other words, those that minister to us. Okay? And over time, maturity is produced, as long as we are consistent and stay what God wants us to do. And then verse 13 is probably... Let me introduce it, and then we'll pick up there. So we looked at two of the verses there. He has persistent plans to visit. That's verse 13. And let me just read it. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. And the persistent part is that I often have planned to come to you. In other words, this this has been a constant plan. It's not the first time that he's wanted to visit Rome. This is something that over a long period of time he's wanted to go. In fact, when he started the third missionary journey, I almost envision Paul thinking in his mind that part of the third missionary journey would be a trip to Rome. And then towards the end of the trip, he's in Corinth and he realizes there's just not enough time. Everything took longer than I expected. I've got to get back to Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. I'm just not going to be able to make it. So the second best thing is he writes this letter that we have today. But it's part of God's design and part of what God had intended for Paul that he might minister to us today. Okay, But he has had several, several occasions when he has desired to visit. And he doesn't want them to be unaware. He wants them to be aware of it because he wants them to know that he cares about them. So, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, and that's the main cause of that sentence. And we'll pick up there next time. That often I plan to come to you and then, and have been prevented thus far. So we'll talk a little bit about what prevented Paul. I should have brought out the idea of brethren. I'll do that next week. He is writing to Christians. I don't want to minimize that at all. Uh, some commentators seem to indicate that he's writing to a mixed group and there may be unbelievers and he wants them to have salvation clear. I think he's writing to Christians so that they have a clear understanding of what the gospel is all about and the issues relating to bringing people to Christ. So he's writing to believers and here's one of the indicators. All right? Closing thought. Every day and every circumstance can be a step toward spiritual maturity. It's all a matter of attitude. Who wants to close for us? Mary Lee, our prayer warrior. You have not left us in a way. To us, what we force them, our children, our children, our children, 
to strengthen you just to give us what we might be on the upward rise of the, the desire that we stand in. Amen.